Uh, it's good to see you all. I'm glad that you guys are all here and you're interested in this topic because it's an interest of mine. Uh, my name is Mike Charterwich. I've been on staff with Disciple Makers over 20 years. So I'm, I'm kind of old. I've been around for a while. Um, also, um, I staff at Bloomsburg University right now, and that's actually, yeah, and I'm actually an alumni too, so I came from there. Uh, and I studied anthropology and philosophy there. So obviously the, the theory of evolution is definitely was interested, interesting to me being an anthropology major, and I dealt with that a lot. Um, and currently I'm working on a master's degree in Christian apologetics, which is how to answer objections to the Christian faith and, and think through a lot of these deep problems or issues in our culture. So I'm working on that right now. I'll be done with that soon. Um, so I'm excited to, to be able to do this topic with you guys and talk through this. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to do a presentation, and I'm going to try to leave about 15 minutes at the end for Q&A. So if you have questions, things you don't understand, or you're like, I don't know if I agree with that, feel free. We'll, we'll pass mics around. Um, just wait till you get the mic because we're recording this. So try to wait for the mic to come around and so we can, everybody can hear the questions. And so that'll be great. So we'll, we'll make sure we do that. All right, so let's jump in. Uh, so are science and Christianity opposed to one another? Uh, there are many people that believe so. They believe that Actually, they're even at war with one another. And you kind of see attacks from both sides against each other. Um, and, the, and Christians can do this too. Um, and so, and, and I, you see this often. You see this often by certain scientists. We'll, we'll state this fact. So Jerry Korn, he's, Coin, he's a biologist. He said, faith may be a gift in religion, but in science it's poison. For faith is no way to find truth. Is he right? Right? Is faith and, and, and religion opposite? And maybe faith can't even lead us to truth? Well, it shouldn't be surprising that you're at a Christian conference that I would say, no, I don't think he's right. So and in fact, what I want to establish in this seminar is that since science and Christianity are allies, Christians can confidently pursue science and see how it reveals evidence for God rather than being negative against God. So that's what we're going to look at tonight. Science and Christianity are allies, and we can confidently pursue science as it reveals evidence for God. So we'll do that in three points here. Uh, and you have your outline. You can take notes there. First, we're going to look at the objection that science doesn't need Christianity, that science is a superior way of knowing, and religion and other ways of knowing are sub are not, are inferior. Um, and so we're going to look at kind of the superiority idea of science. And secondly, we're going to look at a, a stronger objection that science has disproved Christianity. So certain scientific findings, particularly the theory of evolution, has banished the Bible and Christianity. Um, so we'll look at that objection specifically. And then we'll look at some of the positive evidence. How can we see how science can confirm Christianity? Is there ways we can reason from nature that we, things we discover to even the existence of God himself. All right, so we're going to look at these three points. So first, we'll start off with the first one, that science doesn't need Christianity. And this is, not everyone would say this, not every scientist would say this, and probably not all your professors would say this, but some do, and they have a lot of influence. Uh, one famous statement by Bertrand Russell, who was like a philosopher, scientist, he said this. He said, whatever knowledge is obtainable must be obtained by scientific methods, and what science cannot discover, mankind cannot know. All right, do you see what he's saying here? That only through the methods of science can, we be lead, can lead us to real knowledge of the world. Everything else, implicitly, religion and philosophy, even other humanities and, and other aspects of life, they don't really give us true knowledge. Science is the only one that can really give us true knowledge. Um, but there's a lot of problems with this. Uh, first question is for him is, my question for Bertrand Russell is, how did he come to know that? <laughs> what scientific experiment did he perform that led him to have this grand, sweeping philosophical statement about all knowledge? And see, right, 
people can make statements like this, but they don't realize they actually defeat themselves because there is no experiment or study of nature that we could demonstrate this idea. See, science, we have to think about this in a, in a few ways. Um, this idea, how would we respond to this besides showing that it's self-defeating to make an argument like that? Um, here's a couple of responses to this. One is that science itself requires faith. Science itself requires faith. And I know many scientists would hate this idea. They'd, they'd bristle against it. But in reality, it's true. And no less a scientist as famous as Albert Einstein even argued this. He said that science can only be created by those who are thoroughly imbued with the aspiration towards truth and understanding. This source of feeling, however, springs from the sphere of religion. To this, there also belongs the faith in the possibility that the regulations valid for the world of existence are rational, that is comprehensible to reason. I cannot conceive a genuine, genuine man of science without that profound faith. So you see what he's saying here. He's like, the whole perspective, the whole way we view nature and the whole scientific progress of examining nature and understanding it and how it works. First, it, it assumes that, that we are interested in truth and understanding, right? Nature doesn't give us that, that goal or directive. He's saying that comes from somewhere else. Um, so even the very foundation of the pursuit of science doesn't come from science. Um, also, he talks about the idea that the world is comprehensible to reason. Why should we expect the, the world and the physical universe to accord with our reason, and that using our reason and other methods, we could actually understand it and rationally understand it? Um, science assumes all kinds of things that can't be proved by science, right? The whole idea of logic and mathematics and all the tools that we use they don't come from science itself. Those are all assumptions and things that we use that we believe can give us an understanding of nature, but they don't come from science. We have faith that those things work, and we just assume that they work. Um, when you start to really dig into this, you realize that scientists make all kinds of assumptions that science can't prove. So Bertrand Russell's idea that only science can produce truth and true knowledge is just not true. It's a way overblown statement um, that can't be demonstrated. Right? And so science requires faith in and of itself. And secondly, science has limits. And science, science cannot produce all the knowledge we need. It cannot explain everything. And when you start to think about it, it, it becomes pretty obvious pretty quickly. Um, right? Science can study life, but it can't answer the question, what is the purpose of life? Right? We can study organisms, we can't say, like, why are they here in the first place, or what is the purpose of existence, or what is the purpose of human life? Science can't answer those questions. Um, also, just even ethical things, like, what is justice? Like, how can you do a scientific experiment on an organism or an electrical function or an astronomical observation and determine that something is just and something is unjust. You just can't do that. That's not even what science can do. Also, just even the biggest question, why does anything exist at all? See, science can describe what is happening, but it doesn't explain the bigger whys. It can't answer those questions. A lot of those questions have to come from somewhere else. So again, Science, there's limits to science. Science does a lot of amazing things, so I don't want to be negative about science. Science is amazing. And we've discovered a lot of things and grown our knowledge, but there's limits to it. And we have to be real about that, and we can't oversell science and what it can prove and what it can't prove. Um, so science requires faith. Science has limits. Um, and Christians actually have advanced science throughout history. When we look at the history of science, we see that there are many significant discoveries that Christians actually advanced. Here's just a few famous scientists. If you just want to look, there's, there's many more than this. I just didn't want to overwhelm us. But a lot of these, these men here were committed Christians in different ways. And even Galileo, who most people look at this battle between the church and Galileo to affirm the um, heliocentric view of the, the universe, of, I'm sorry, of our solar system, uh, he, he still was a Christian. 
He was just trying to argue with the church about, about are we misinterpreting the Bible or, or not understanding nature correctly in terms of how the Bible interacts with what we view in science. And so he wasn't trying to disprove God or, or the Bible. Um, Gregor Mendel did a lot of uh, ex uh, just experiments on genet what now is termed modern genetics. He led some of those early ideas like cross-breeding plants and, and seeing how inheritance is passed on. Um, Werner Heisenberg discovered um, just different principles about the atom. He's famous for the uncertainty principle in atomic, in atomic um, energy. And so these scientists all advanced science. They didn't see this war between their faith and science. Um, actually, a lot of them thought that their faith gave them reason to pursue science. Um, Kepler, one of those scientists, said this, those laws of nature are within the grasp of the human mind. God wanted us to recognize them by creating us after his own image so that we could share in his own thoughts. So, see, he thought, as I investigate nature, God is, I know I have a rational, intelligent being that's given us minds, and that gives me reason and confidence in my exploration of nature. It gives me motivation to find out what did God do? How did he create? And so, a lot of them were motivated by their faith. It wasn't an obstacle to them making real scientific discoveries. I think even in the Bible, too, you see this, that um, in Romans chapter 1, it talks about nature and God. It says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. So Paul in Romans chapter 1 says, it should be obvious to everyone that God exists because we can see evidence of it in nature. And so even the Bible itself and the Christian view is that, yes, there is the Bible, which is God's specific revelation to us, but there's also general revelation in nature. That nature gives us, doesn't give us everything that we need to know about God and salvation, but it gives us enough to know that God actually is real and there is a God out there. Um, so Christianity and science are not, I've never really been seen to be opposed to one another. That's sort of a myth um, that, that some on the other side would say. So, right, so we see science requires faith, science has limits, and Christians have advanced science. These are all reasons to argue that, that this idea that science doesn't need Christianity or science is opposed to Christianity is just not true. So let's look at, though, maybe in a stronger objection. I said objection. The second point here is that science has disproved Christianity. This is even a stronger one. Right? It's not just saying that they're not compatible or just keep one separate from the other. It's that scientific discoveries have disproved Christianity. Uh, Daniel Dennett, who's a uh, famous, a well-known philosopher of science, he said this, at least in the eye of academics, science has won and religion has lost. Darwin's idea has banished the book of Genesis to the limbo of quaint mythology. Right? <laughs> I mean, that's like a shot right across the bow. Uh, and, but this is not unusual. I remember in my human evolution text, it said very similar thing that, well, we used to believe Genesis and the story there, that's how humans came about, but now we know that's not really how it worked anymore. Uh, my current philosophy of science textbook, I'm reading a Christian one, I'm also reading a non one by a non-Christian. He says that Darwin, particularly evolution, has taken away the idea of purpose in nature anymore. We, now we know there's really no purpose to nature in life, particularly organic life. So it's everywhere. And my guess is, and I'd love to hear some of you guys in the Q&A too, if that's been some experience that you've had. So what I want to do is look particularly at evolution because it's so often used as an argument against Christianity and particularly even Genesis and the Bible. So I want to target in on that objection and just show you, like give you a couple arguments of why there's a lot of gaps in evolutionary theory and it actually doesn't demonstrate what it claims. This particularly was a relation to humans. So let's just do a little quick crash course. So you got to put your thinking caps here, okay? This is a science thing, so you have to actually think. We have to think of them in science a little bit. Um, so, uh, so Darwin's theory, just give you a quick crash course. He, he started to look at how populations of animals and, and initially in economics, how food 
actually generated more growth in population. The more food, the more growth. So he said this in The Origin of Species. He says, never to forget that every single organic being around us may be said to be striving to the utmost to increase in numbers. Lighten any check, mitigate the destruction ever so little, and the number of the species will almost instant instantaneously increase to any amount. Right, so he says if eugenesia kind of stays in balance, but if you add a lot more food resources, then, and, and there's no killing off of the animals, they're just gonna multiply like crazy. They're gonna have babies like crazy, and it's just gonna ex explode. And so what he said then is that as these populations explode, they have to interact with the, the physical environment. And what happens is that at, at some point, that food abundance starts to decrease. And so as there's the struggle for existence that goes on, so you can see here you have giraffes of different lengths, necks. And the one with the short neck, you feel bad for this little guy here. Um, <laughs> I really feel bad as you get to this picture here. Uh, <laughs> Right, he can't reach the leaves on these trees. So as the environment shifts, his ability to survive is decreased because of his short necks, but the ones with the longer necks survived. And so as they survive, then nature selects for the longer necks in the sense that they can survive, they can pass on their genes and their, their inheritance. And, and the next generation will have more long necks. And then that, that, show, that drives the change we see in the animal kingdom. And this is Darwin's famous principle of natural selection. Let me read it for you. He says, as many more individuals of each species are born than can possibly survive, and as consequently there is a frequently recurring struggle for existence, it follows that any being, if it vary however slightly in any manner probable to itself, under the complex and sometimes varying conditions of life, will have a better chance of surviving and thus be naturally selected. From the strong principle of inheritance, any selected variety will tend to propagate its new and modified form. Right? So just what we see, we see here, that's what he's saying. Right? That's his principle of natural selection. Um, so what do we think about his theory? Well, uh, one book I read by David Stove, um, it, it, it really, he challenges this idea. And he says, particularly when you take this principle, he said, you, we see this variation in populations of animals, so we can directly observe it in many cases. Now, whether or not all, it demonstrates that all animals have existed from, descended from a common ancestor, that's much harder to demonstrate. You know? And I would argue that the, the fossil record and other things don't demonstrate it um, or give us conclusions so that there's the other ways that these, these animal species came into existence, um, some of them. But what he's arguing here is that humans, when you particularly look at humans, the idea, Darwin's ideas don't seem to apply at all. In fact, in fact, we see the exact opposite. So one thing he says is that, think about that principle of population. He says when the resources increase more and more, and the food increases more and more, that, that organisms just have as many population and offspring as they possibly can. But think about it, do humans do that? Do we have as many children as we possibly can? No, in fact, we, in hundreds of ways even, limit the amount of children that we have deliberately, even when we have an abundance of food and resources. If you look at this chart here, this was uh, done by the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis, and it shows on the left here, it's like how many children per family and across the bottom is how wealthy they are. And what you see is, as the wealth increases, the amount of children people have continually decreases. The wealthiest countries right now um, have the, the lowest birth rates. It's completely opposite of Darwin's predictions. Right? We, the people who have the most ability to have more kids and afford them and provide for them have the less amount of kids, the least amount of kids completely contradicts his theory. Um, and think about, too, he talks about this struggle for existence. How should we think about this struggle for existence? Is there always constant the struggle between humans for resources, where we're constantly fighting for each other and buying and stealing like we see in the animal kingdom? No, we don't see that struggle for existence. There obviously is like conflicts within humans, but nothing like Darwin predicted. 
Um, David Stove argued this. He said, Darwin must have gone wrong about man and badly wrong. For if his theory or explanation of evolution were true, there would be in every species a constantly recurring struggle for life. A, comp a competition to survive and reproduce which is so severe that few of the competitors in any generation can win. But this prediction of the theory is not borne out by experience in the case of man. In no human society, whether savage or civilized, is there any such struggle for life. And when you start to think more and more about especially humans, think about it. The whole point of natural selection is that organisms want to pass on their genes, right? They want to pass on their inheritance traits to their, 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 their uh, offspring. But think what humans do. We often not only limit, we have birth control and other things to limit how many children we have. We also do things that sacrifice our own life. Think about the idea of being a hero. Does being a hero and sacrificing your life, maybe even for a complete stranger, which we would look at as the greatest height of virtue, actually in Darwinism, that's a complete error. That's a complete fail, especially if you were single and didn't have kids yet. Right, so if you give your life for a complete stranger, somebody's dying in a river, and you jump in, and you try to save them, but you lose your life in the process to rescue them, you'd be looked at as a hero. But for Darwinian, that's, that's nonsense. That's foolish. You didn't pass on your genetic information to the next generation. And that's what they argue is the, the driving force of evolution. And see, humans are so different. We don't at all follow Darwin's theory. And like I said, I think there's other problems. I'm going to show you another one soon. But see, Christianity has an explanation why humans are so radically different. And we don't follow the, the, the laws, Darwin's laws, very closely at all. Right? In Genesis chapter 1, it says this in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. See, rather than banishing Genesis, Genesis actually gives us a better explanation of why humans are so radically different than all other organisms in the world. Um, it's because we're made in God's image. We are made unique by him and designed unique by him. And that's why um, natural selection and evolutionary theory can't, often has a really hard time explaining humans and our behavior. Right, so there's definitely weaknesses in Darwinian evolution, and it has not disproved Christianity. It has not disproved religion. That, that is a way oversold statement um, by Daniel Dennett and others like him. So we looked at the objection that science doesn't need Christianity. We've answered that. The objection science has disproved Christianity, but and we've answered that, just one element of it. There's a lot other more we could talk about. But thirdly, that science can confirm Christianity. I just want to get some of the positive arguments that how we can see God in nature and what can get, science can give us evidence for that. There's two things I want to argue and so I just want to make, leave with you. First is just the idea of the origin of the universe. Like where did the universe come from? So as uh, astronomers have been ma were making observations about galaxies in the universe, they, they notice a few peculiar things. One is that uh, Edwin Hubble, when he was using uh, more powerful telescopes to look at distant galaxies, he noticed that they all had a red tinge to the color of the light from them. And just given physics, what we know is that when light is moving, when a, the source of light is moving away, it actually produces a red tint to the color of the light that we receive. But if it's something's moving close to us, it actually makes it a blue tint. And so he asked the question, well, why do all the galaxies that we're observing all have this red tint to them? That, that's strange. It seems like they're all moving away. Um, and another discovery that was made, it's called the cosmic microwave background radiation. Um, it, yeah, it's a mouthful, I know. <laughs> it's kind of like what comes out of your microwave, sort of. Um, but that, that there's this low-level residual radiation that has been discovered throughout all the universe that seems to be the remnants of a huge emitted of energy in the past at some point. And, this, and uh, even telephone companies had a problem because they were getting static when they were starting to develop their systems. They couldn't figure out, why is there this static everywhere? It's because of that low-level radiation. 
Um, and these discoveries led to a powerful implication. And this is where the idea of like the, the whole Big Bang theory comes from. The idea is that if the universe is expanding and there's this huge emitted emission of energy that's sort of very low right now, must have mean it was a lot higher in the past, that the idea that the universe, if it's expanding, it must have been contracted to one point in the past where all, when things came into existence. And Simon Singe, who's a, a physicist, he said, this is the implications of this. He says, the term Big Bang implies some sort of explosion, which is not a wholly inappropriate analogy, except that the Big Bang was not an explosion in space, but an explosion of space. Similarly, the Big Bang was not an explosion in time, but an explosion of time. Both space and time were created at the moment of the Big Bang. Right, so this is the current Big Bang cosmological theory. Um, but think about the radical implications of this, that at some point in the past, time and space itself came into existence. And the question is always, well, what was there before that? Well, you can't really say because you only can go, we can only test back to the beginning of when there is something for us to actually test. <laughs> you can't test nothing. But what is, what does this evidence lead us for? You can make an argument for the existence of God just even based off of this evidence, right? You can say this. First, whatever begins to exist has a cause. And this is pretty self-evident, right? If something comes to existence, it must have a cause or something that brought it into existence. Things don't come into existence uncaused. Secondly, the universe had a beginning. Science seems to be pointing in that direction that the universe had a beginning. And these are more observations are being confirmed in this way. Um, you can also make philosophical arguments that, that you can have an infinite regress of, of events over time. There had to be some beginning point to what we have now. So therefore, it follows logically that the universe had a cause. Right? There had to be something that caused the universe to come into existence. It couldn't just pop into existence from nothing by nothing. But think about it. What would be powerful enough and have the intelligent enough to set up all the natural laws that govern the universe and the power enough to create from nothing. Right, Genesis 1.1 has said it all along. Right, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Right, that, that God can be the explanation. There has to be some uncaused being that must always have existed to bring everything else into existence. Um, and so you can make an argument for the existence of God based on what we reason from nature, right? That the, from the origin of the universe, that, that God exists, right? It doesn't prove the Bible's God exactly. You have to make other arguments to connect it to scripture. But it shows, like Romans 1 says, that there is a creator of the universe. Um, so... Secondly, I want to look at another thing about evolution, right? About the design, uh, let me just, I'm a little ahead here. Kind of like the design of life can give us reason to see that God exists. Let me go back here. So Darwin, what he said, one way to falsify his theory, he said this, if it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed, which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive slight modifications my theory would absolutely break down, right? So Darwin didn't think, he thought these changes have to take over long periods of time. They don't just happen instantaneously. They're, they're slow, slight advantages that give an organism a chance to survive, and then that, that next organism has more changes, and then that allows them to survive, and on and on. So think about this. Are there exemptions to that? Have that criteria be met? Some people argue yes. One is from the bacteria flagellum. Um, so these are bacteria, and they have these, what they call flagellum. They're like little, uh, they almost, they, they kind of wiggle and spin around. They drive the bacteria through um, the cellular, cellular um, fluids, and they allow them to hunt for food, because they can't just stand stationary. They have to like seek out food to, to devour. And so as we've been able to look closer and closer inside these systems, we realize that they're incredibly complex. That this bacteria flagellum, one of those little, uh, they're almost like little motors. They're similar almost to motors that we design. 
Um, and they have like drive shafts, right? You have the propeller, you have the things that anchor it into the cell wall um, and drive it, and chemical reactions that cause it to move and spin and propel itself. Um, there's actually about 30 inner working parts just in this little device here that allow it to propel the cell. And what's interesting is if you take, if you take one part out, it just doesn't function. It can't function, it can't do what it's supposed to do. And so um, Michael Behe, who's a biochemist at Lehigh University, uh, he came up, he said that he believes that these are irreducibly complex systems. And this is what he means by that. He says, by irreducible complexity, I mean a single system composed of several well-matched interacting parts that contribute to the basic function, wherein the removal of any one of the parts causes the system to effectively cease to function. Right, so he says, and that's sort of what Darwin was saying, right? If you could show that a system had to be all in place and it couldn't evolve over time by small successive modifications, then this theory would be disproven. Um, and so it seems like the bacteriophagellum gives us reason to question, yeah, how could this develop? Because all those parts have to be in there for the system to work. And Darwin's theory can only work if the system actually is functional. Because then if it's not functional, it can't give the, the animal an opportunity to survive. And so that's an argument against that, that, that we see this incredible design and it seems irreducibly complex. Um, so you say like, well, how could it, where would it come from then, right? If it, if it couldn't come through Darwin, Darwinian mechanisms. Uh, also another one is fun. This is a little guy called the plant hopper. The Bloomsbury students know this guy, I showed them this before. Um, the plant hopper is incredible. Uh, he can jump literally hundreds of times his body length and this happens so fast that both his legs have to activate, his rear legs that he generates the power from, have to activate exactly to the millisecond at the exact same time. Because if they don't, if they're slightly off, it'll completely careen off in the wrong direction and not to be able to escape predators or jump actually where it wants, you know, like, <clears throat> you know, trying to jump away from the fire and it jumps in the wrong direction, it's like, oh, I'm not, didn't help it survive, right? So it has to have all these, it has to be exactly coordinated. And how did they do it? Well, what was discovered as they were looking at them uh, under electron microscopes is that amazingly they have gears that regulate the, 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 the timing of the jump, right? So the gears, right, they help it, help coordinate the, the legs to jump exactly at the right time. And they said these gears move at an astonishing 50,000 teeth per second. It's incredible like that even something like this exists. And even more incredible, you think about like, this looks really familiar to something that we do, right? There's gears here, but human engineers design gears. We do the same thing to actually coordinate an engine so that everything is timed perfectly, we have these gears so the systems all rotate and function in time. And how could these things develop, right? Um, obviously there has to be scientific work and discovery on them, but people are arguing that these things have the, the elements of design, right? And design that's for a specific purpose. And when we see design for a specific purpose, we usually think, uh, we almost always conclude an intelligent agent did it. Um, and so we have an explanation, right, in the Bible. Christians would say, God did it, <laughs> right? Genesis 125, and God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind and God saw that it was good. Right, more and more the complexity of nature really calls out to an intelligent designer. Um, but that leads us to, well, where, who's this intelligent designer that designed all these things? Well, it, the logical implication could be that they had to be so powerful and a designer, God fits that description very well, right? Um, and this idea that there's a powerful, intelligent creator that created the universe, designed life, makes Christianity more plausible. So we've seen after looking at all these things, science and Christianity can work together. They're not, at, they're not enemies. We've seen that the findings of science do not disprove Christianity, and we only scratched the surface on that, but I give you an argument against evolution, um, particularly with humans. Uh, and Christianity can be confirmed by science. We can use Christianity to confirm science. Um, 
So rather than being at war with one another, right, um, Christianity, we can see them working together in harmony. Um, and it's just amazing, right? When we look at nature, we just see what Psalm 19.1 says is true. The heavens declare the glory of God in the sky above proclaims his handiwork. So I'm going to stop there and take some questions from you guys. I'd love to hear your questions about the talk or just anything else you want to ask about science. So if we can get, um, get some mic runners to come back, just wait for the mic so everybody can hear you. There's one up front here. Uh, first of all, Mike, excellent talk. Yeah. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Um, I was just curious, um, how many times have you been giving this talk and like what led you to kind of stand before everybody and you know decide on talking about something that really can be like controversial and contradictory? Yeah. Um, pr primarily, when I became a Christian, I was just interested in all these questions about how can we as Christians demonstrate, even like through science, philosophy, history, like how could we show people that Christianity is rational and reasonable to believe in? Because there's a lot of misconceptions about that. So that's always motivated me. Um, also, I'm just interested in these topics. They just fascinate me. So I'd love to be able to share them with you guys uh, and hopefully persuade you if you're maybe skeptical and you're like, mm, I don't know, is, is Christianity and science really go together? I think you can make good case, and hopefully I did that today, just a little time we had, that, um, that they're not incompatible and that you guys can pursue the sciences and actually make discoveries like those other men in history and other people in history, right? So yeah, those are maybe some things I would say motivate me, but thanks for asking. Other questions? Just kind of go back and forth on each side, so yeah, maybe Zach, you could do this side, Ben can do that side. Go ahead. Uh, just to play like devil's advocate sure. for a second, uh, why would God create animals like with the gear legs of the leaf hopper to defend against predators if they were made for the Garden of Eden where there was no hunting or need for survival? Mm -hmm. That's a good question. I mean, it's hard to answer all the questions in terms of what was the state of creation before the fall of humanity and after. Um, so you could probably think, too, there's other functions at the legs, not just to escape predators. There could be other functions that, you know. Um, one thing I think with God is sometimes a designer just delights to design things. And they design things for fun or they design things for beauty, right? So God could do that, right? He could design all kinds of things. There are some animals, you look at them, they're, they're, some of them are incredibly beautiful. And some like the platypus, you look at, you're like, what was that, you know? like. <laughs> Um, you know, but it almost like makes us laugh. Like we see some animals, you know, like they're interesting. Um, so, so yeah, so I think there's multiple reasons why a designer designs, not just for escaping predators. Um, and unfortunately we don't have a, a lot of understanding of exactly what was true before the fall of man and after, and how does that affect, uh, the creation itself? I think there, there was an effect to it, but it's hard to tell what. That's a good question. Uh, question on this side over here. Yeah. here. If you got Hello? the mic, you can just okay. go ahead. Nice. Um, I guess this is a little bit of a similar question here, but uh, <laughs> would you consider yourself a young earth creationist or an old earth creationist? Uh, I knew I was going to get this question. <laughs> I'm the guy. <laughs> I'm your guy. <laughs> so I, I basically the way I look at it is like I'm open to keep researching the evidence. Um, I personally lean towards, when I look at the scriptures, I feel like they lean more towards a young earth, like just literally, and you read through the text. And that, so then in that case, if you believe in a young earth, almost all research is geared towards trying to prove that the earth is old, or that's just the assumption. So almost no research is going into the other side of that equation. Um, so it's just, that's what you would just find. That's the common understanding um, uh, of scientists today. Um, you know, some Christians are young earth scientists, they'll, they'll give arguments for it, and you could look those up, you know, and see their arguments. Um, I think as far as, like, Genesis goes, I think you can make an argument that the earth is old from the text. Um, and some denominations, a Christian denomination, say, hey, that's a legitimate argument. You know, they'll say, like, the days of creation were more ages of time versus, like, literal 24 hours. And there's some 
arguments in scripture where you can make where the word day, yam, is used, that means to a longer indefinite period of time, not like a literal 24-hour period. So it's like, how do we translate it in Genesis 1? So I think there's questions there to ask. Um, I would say I think you can be a good Christian and believe in a young earth or an old earth model. So um, yeah, so I would, I, I just like to see more evidence and arguments on both sides of that. You have a follow-up question? Uh, no, it wasn't really a follow-up question. Okay. Um, maybe just something I wanted to say. I mean, I've always kind of been interested in this kind of stuff too. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I just really find the value in Genesis in maybe pointing more towards Christ, whether you read it from a young earth or old earth yes. point of view. There's like lots of call, callbacks, I don't know. <laughs> well, the thing is, I think what people, when you look at Genesis, we realize Genesis is not written like a science textbook. That's not its main goal, is to explain everything about the natural world. It is the story of God's relationship with his people and their salvation. And so we have to be, be careful when we read Genesis not to assume our modern scientific approaches and thinking and read that back in, as if the authors were thinking that. That in general in biblical interpretation is bad. It's called anachronistic fallacy, is when you read modern concepts back into an ancient document. Um, that leads to bad interpretation. So you have to be careful with that. But your point is taken, right? The main, what's the main point of the story so that's why we have to say it's not to explain all these scientific principles. Um, but I think from some of the bigger principles we have, like I argued, you can reason that what we find in nature actually matches up with some of those. And we can make an argument like that. So um, thanks for your thoughts. Let's take another, another question back on this side. Is there a mic on the left side here? Or, okay, go ahead. Here. Yep. Okay. Um, so obviously with the purpose of science being trying to understand things and that's in general how we want to pursue things and even towards like our faith we want a lot of people want to understand before we take the step but right. um, I think one of your first points was maybe like maybe we can't fully understand everything science doesn't explain everything so with regards to faith and also maybe just anything in general what would you say is um, like to what extent should we seek to, to understand or prove things yeah. to what we believe yeah, um, you know, uh, part of it, you just got to go look through the scriptures and see how the biblical authors deal with it. Um, I know there's a certain thing, right, where we can't prove everything. So, so certain things are taken on trust and faith. And that's why I said Christians do that, obviously. We have faith. But that's why I try to make the point that scientists do as well. Because it's, it's, it's not, they think it's, well, we don't have faith and you do. They do. But, um, you know, if you think in the book of Hebrews, um, in Hebrews chapter 11, um, the author, uh, he even mentions the creation of the world um, in, let's see, um, yeah, verse 3, chapter 11, verse 3. He says, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of the things that are visible. So he says, you know, we can't see all everything, right? So we, we believe by faith, there's this element of faith that we believe this is how the universe was created, that God did it, because the Genesis tells us that. Um, but also I think you see in scripture, biblical authors appeal to evidence and reason. You know, so the, at the beginning of the book of Luke, Luke talks about, well here, he's, he's talking to a, uh, probably a Roman official or a Greek official, and he says, I've researched these things and I've interviewed, he's interviewed eyewitnesses to, to make sure the truth of them, right? So that you could be assured of what you believe. Um, so he was like actually interviewing people looking for evidence. Um, in the Gospel of John, John talks about the miracles that Jesus performed and even says, and Jesus himself says, well, believe on these miracles. If you don't believe what I'm saying, believe on these miracles. Um, and that John says the purpose, the reason why I wrote the Gospel was that the signs that Jesus did were evidence of who he was. Um, because they were using observation. They were walking around. They were seeing Jesus do these incredible things. Didn't seem like there was any natural explanation for them. And so then they're reasoning by their observations, okay, Jesus must be something unique. He must be divine. And particularly when Jesus made a prediction, like science look wants predictions, Jesus said, I predict that I'm going to rise from the dead because I'm the son of God. And then when he did it, he proved the prediction, right? It was found valid. So that kind of reasoning you see in scripture. 
So I would say, yes, not everything we will ever know. There's a lot of things we just have to trust God. He doesn't give us all the answers. But it's not wrong for Christians to look for evidence and reasons too, because you see that in the Bible as well. That's a good question. Uh, we'll take a couple more. Uh, who has the mic next? Go ahead. Yeah. Um, so I was curious, because in reading Genesis, and specifically 1 and 2, um, yep. it's, it's, the interpretations are difficult, at least for me, because there's the argument that it's literary, and so you can't take it literally. And then I think there are parts of that that are true, because you see some of Genesis 1 restated in Genesis 2 again, Yep. in a different light. And mm-hmm. so then that, that comes with the seven days. Well, what is a day? How long is a day? Right. That sort of thing. And so then it becomes like, like what you said, where it's like, this is not a science textbook. Um, but you know, what, do you, what do you think about how should I interpret that text? Is it more literary? You know, what is Moses writing this based on the purpose of Moses writing this? Right. Um, you know, what, how should I interpret this? Yeah, and that's a good question. Because um, obviously, when you're interpreting the Bible, you always want to understand the type of literature it is, because that helps us with the rules of interpretation. So poetry, right, we interpret differently than in history or logical arguments, and that's in the Bible. Um, so we want to know the genre. I think the pro- part of the problem is the genre of Genesis is interesting and unique in some ways. It doesn't fit right into a neat little box. Because it has elements of poetry in it. It has like, these repeated themes. But also has elements of history as well. So when we're teaching through Genesis <clears throat> at Bloomsburg right now and the Susqu- other Susquehanna Valley teams, and what you see is right, these genealogies that connect historical characters throughout history, leading up to Abraham, and then beyond him. So the biblical authors don't treat it as well, the Adam and Eve, they were a figurative example. They weren't real. They were just there to show us good and evil and what it means to follow God and not. Those genealogies are all connected to living people that later came about. So I think you can look at stuff in the text and say, it can't be just myth. It can't be just figurative. There, there is some literal history actually taking place here. Um, so... Yes, I don't think you can just interpret Genesis as complete, just sort of like a story, but not an actual event that happened. Um, Also, the fall of Adam and Eve, right, the sin that's passed on, the New Testament authors say that's still happening today, but you can't have a fall of man for just figurative people, (laughs) right? Otherwise, God would have a mythical story that he's now punishing us for, which (laughs) makes no sense, you know? Um, So I think different reasons like that we can't, Genesis is tricky, like how to interpret it. And I think that's why there's some debate over how to take the creation days and how we should look at them. But I think there's a lot of real history there that is also present. Yeah. Uh, let me, let's take two more questions and then we'll wrap up. And I will be here afterwards, so please come up and talk to me. I, I can put off lunch for a while, not forever. But I, I'll love to keep talking to you guys. Or you can come eat lunch with me or something like that. Uh, who has the mic over back there? Hello. Um, hope this is a good question. But I've taken multiple biology classes that have talked about, like, um, a peppered moth. or I think it's, that's what it's called. Yes, it, yes, pepper moth, yep. It's like a, the moth that a, adapted to its environment because of pollution. So I was curious on how we could explain an organism's ability to adapt to its environment. Is it, like built into its nature? Is that like a design? Yeah, I mean, one thing I think from, if you're thinking about intelligent design, think about it, if organism had no ability to adapt to their changing environment or any mechanism to help them survive, then everything would just die out really fast. And God, but God told, right, he says, even the animals, he wants them to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. So it seems like the way God is designed with the genetic code and the variations that are within species. I mean, even look in this room now how we're all humans, but we all look a lot different, right? And a dip, people from different parts of the world will look different. There's just this, there's this amount of change within those species that exists. And sometimes that helps survival. So in the case of the peppered moth experiment, yeah, the, the, the color of the moth, if it was on a tree that wasn't covered by soot, it could blend in, but when the, the, the trees got covered by soot, 
um, the tree's camouflage pattern stood out, and then birds could pick them off. The thing is, though, what happened is once the pollution went away, the population of the moths just balanced again and went back the other way. Um, so obviously, God has built things in to help organisms survive. But the bigger question is, is those changes in survival mechanisms, does that explain the origin of all life? Is Darwin's theory applied to all living things? And has everything um, descended from a common organism, one organism in the past? That's more what you know, people will debate and say, well, like, is the evidence strong to really prove that? Um, and a lot of scholars argue, no, there's not enough evidence to prove that thesis. But we can see those changes in the moths. That is something we can observe and see. Uh, yeah. I'll take one more, and then we got a break for lunch. My question is that, what do you think about the fact that, like, the story of Genesis and, like, Young Earth implies that some animals that, like, we see today coexisted with animals that they, like, weren't designed to? Like, for example, like the dinosaurs, for example. Yeah. Like, you know. Everybody wants to know about the dinosaurs, Genesis, right? Like, they're so cool. Yeah. Like, where did they come from? Genesis kind of would imply that the dinosaurs, which were pretty sure, pretty did exist, coexisted with humans. And right. that the ancient giant insects coexisted <laughs> with humans too. When humans don't, and other modern animals don't seem like designed to coexist with dinosaurs and giant insects. Right, well, I, I don't know if I would say they're not designed to coexist. I think more the question people would ask is, did they coexist, how would we know? Um, I don't have all the answers to that. You know, like I think it's, a, it's an interesting question to research more. One thing we do know is that the world was very different in the past. That, do you ever notice like how amazingly gigantic dinosaurs are? They are bigger than any living things right now on a scale. And even things that do exist now, like alligators, sharks, in the past, they were way bigger. And, and some of these things have not changed that much over the reported time of millions of years. They have not changed that much. And so obviously the world was a very different place. And scientists actually don't, paleontologists, they don't have an argument or reason. They can't really explain why all these animals were so gigantic and why, why aren't they now? Why don't things grow to that size anymore? Um, probably on a young earth view, young earthers would argue, some of them, that before the flood, the world was very different, especially even before the fall of humans. And that the flood, if, if a literal worldwide flood happened, imagine that, that would completely mess up the, the whole geology, the whole face of land, it would kill so many things. And if right, Noah only took a certain amount of animals in the ark, then that's why we don't see as much diversity in species today as we did in the past. Because when you look in the past, there's actually a greater diversity of species and numbers of species. But we don't see that today. So like what happened to those, right? So there's a lot of questions that it raises, which I think are super interesting, but I can't explain it all to you because there's a lot of work that still needs to be done you know, in that. Um, but yeah, those are questions, and I think those are good questions that Christians need to take seriously and should dig into the scientific literature. And if you guys are in some of these disciplines, find out those answers. Research them and discover them and put together a scientific model that can explain them. There are Christians that are doing that today. Well, we got a break for lunch, but thank you guys so much for coming. Come up and talk to me if you have more questions. Um, also, I have, a, I have a couple of books. This, it's the same author. This is a shorter one. This is a longer one. It really gives you a good introduction to the different issues of science and Christianity and how we should think about science. So these ones are really good. They're not on the book table, but if you want to come and take a look at them. I have a few other interesting books if you want to take a look for your reading, too. So have a good lunch, everybody.